This Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. Okay. Ta-da. The voice. River Radio. Of the Thames Valley. Hello, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We're delighting you with a short story, The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. Plus the best news stories on books. Hello there, I'm Heather and you're listening to Turning Pages with Julian and myself. Thank you very much to Deborah for uh, a fabulous Your Life, Your Way today, all about uh, herself and her, uh, her challenges with cancer. And good morning, Julian. How lovely to see you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Nice to see you too, Heather. Excellent, excellent. Right, every week on Turning Pages, we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics because great books aren't just on the bestseller list. So if you love reading or you just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme and thank you for joining us. Yes, indeed. And as usual, we have a packed programme for you. And it's an extra special one today because we have a short story classic for you. The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins, which is considered the precursor of the modern mystery novel and is provided courtesy of our friends at Real Reads and Baker Street Press. And in addition, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news that's going to titillate you today. Indeed, indeed. And don't forget, we really, really would like to hear from you. Um, so you can contact me um, at julian at river.radio with any of your book news, suggestions for topics um, for our weekly programme or any recommendations you may have. We'd be delighted to include your thoughts and ideas in future shows. Right. So we're going to start. Oh, excuse me. A little mm, bit of a frog in the throat there, there eh? absolutely. We're going to start with a quick roundup of book stories that we've spotted in the news recently, and I've seen some auction news. A rare complete manuscript of Sherlock Holmes story has just sold for three hundred thousand pounds. So mm-hmm. it's a signed thirty-four page handwritten story, "The Adventure of the Greek Interpreter," which was written by Arthur Conan Doyle in eighteen ninety-three. Now, this story appeared in the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes and introduced Holmes's brother Mycroft to the public. So £300,000 for a short story, that's not bad going, is it? Mm, not bad at all, so search your bookshelves and see what you might have there. Now, we have a, this news item comes from um, our listener Mike in Bexonfield, who pointed out an article in the press this week which has us moving along from Sherlock Holmes to the Beano. Now, a rare copy of the very first edition of the Beano has just been sold at auction for £15,000 after it attracted um, 92 bids. So that was a well sought after uh, a copy. Now, the colour comic was first published on July 30th in 1938 and cost tuppence. And it introduced Lord Snooty and his pals, Little Peanut, Tin Can Tommy and Morgan the Mighty. And it made five times the pre-sale estimate. Now, I 
got used to get the Beano, and I remember Lord Snooty, but not Tin Can Tommy or Little Pete. No, so I think they, and I was thinking the same because they they must have um, um, they must have disappeared for you know at some time yes. um, later. I always remember because it was Aunt Matilda, wasn't it? Lord Snooty was Aunt Matilda, um, but I can't. I must admit I can't remember the terms. But they certainly weren't Little Peanut and Tin Can, unless of course they were other other characters. But yes. they they certainly disappeared in later later editions. Yes, yes, absolutely. Now, there is a new reality TV series which has just been announced in the States and I think it sounds intriguing. They say everyone has a book in them and as we've already had reality TV programmes on cookery, of course, The Great British Bake Off, Mm -hmm. singing, The X Factor and lots of others like that, We've even had pottery, the great pottery throwdown, and obviously entrepreneurship in uh, The Apprentice. Well, the idea now is to uncover the next great novelist. So it's called American's Next Great Author, and it's been billed as a groundbreaking um, idea and could offer unknown writers the chance to publish a bestseller. Right. Each contestant. So this is the idea that each contestant has a minute to pitch their idea to a panel of publishing experts. And then the six finalists are whisked off to a writer's retreat where they'll live together Big Brother style for a month while they produce their novel and joining in on various challenges along the way. Now, as you can imagine, the show is already mired in controversy, with some saying that the prize money for the pilot episode, which is just $2,500, was disgustingly low, and others criticising how you can judge an author's work from a four-week competition. I think, why not give it a go? And anything that makes wanting to write fun has just got to be good for readers and writers everywhere. What do you think? Well, yeah, I think I think it would be a good idea. And actually, isn't it funny how, of course, with the, this 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 poison called social media, some people whining that two thousand five hundred is is low. Well, that could be quite a lot of money to somebody who's just starting off as an author. You know, they whatever. And then, how can you judge um, a book in four weeks? Well, the whole point is the person that said that, who obviously is is rather witless, because they said they're going to have some professionals from the publishing industry, and it's their job that they can spot, you know, what's going to work, um, and you know, within you know glancing of a manuscript so i yeah. think it's a good idea um and also those 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 contestants are coming along they will of course already have um their idea um if not mostly formed but they're you know they're uh, um in their mind and all they have to do is express it and they just have to convince the panel that they've got something that may be worthwhile yeah. reading and off they go i think yeah i think it's a great idea yeah. so I mean, when uh, you know, i was a literary but, agent one of <clears> my uh, really best selling authors sebastian de castell he wrote his first book on what was called a weekend writing retreat. And what you had to do is you had to start the book at the beginning of the weekend and then finish it by the end of the weekend. And you weren't allowed to write anything beforehand. But of course, the idea was that you knew you were going to enter into this competition. So you'd already worked out with your friends what the story was going to be like, you know, Mm. what the arc of the storyline was and the various characters. So it was sort of already been formed in Mm. his mind Mm. before he started the competition. And of course, the end of the competition, that wasn't the published book, but it was a really good first throwdown. Yes. Um, And it's always so much easier to edit than it is to write. So getting something there in its bare form was really great. 
Uh, yeah, no, yeah. no, I think it's, it's, yeah. it's really, it's really good. Now, something completely different uh, from that score, um, is have you, um, forgotten where you've put your car keys recently Ooh, or can't you remember? Yeah. And can't you remember the name of your favorite actor? Um, at that, you know, when you want to answer a quiz question? Well, there are often what seem to be large gaps in our memory and we put it down to stress, exhaustion, or even age. And some people worry that it might be, um, onset of something else, but increasingly expert believe that the loss of cognitive sharpness need not be inevitable. That's good news. It it is, which is very good news. Life circumstances do have an effect on the brain function, but there are ways to reduce them. And reading fiction... Is an excellent way to help your brain, our brains function. Now, in this busy world, and I've often thought this, you know, uh, and, and give this as comfort to people, we, we, we are presented with so much information and we're processing so much information. You know, it comes whizzing off the computer screen. It comes whizzing all over the place or, or, or off your, 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 your smartphones and everything. So, and it's also quick, uh, quick that we, we're not finding the time to hold on to that information. We have to make an effort to do so. And, and we're, increasingly less able to do it so we see something and basically your mind is just shoving it straight into the dustbin because it it thinks it may not need it so reading fiction is a very very good discipline because you have to remember what happened pages before when you're reading your book to fit in what's happening into the plot at the moment you're reading it now the journal um, um the journal um showed that regular reading books newspapers and magazines so there's also if you read newspapers and magazines a lot as well can give you the thinking skills of someone now surprisingly 13 years younger right and it's and, and and basically because when you're reading um particularly novel you're 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 visualizing the characters and the scenes uh in which they're set so our brains are working harder and that is the exercising uh part that gives our our brain it, it its function oh that's really good news mm-hmm, isn't it just so and leg it out to your bookshop and stock up now so when i'm sitting on the sofa with a book in my hand and a cup of tea i can say that i'm exercising you are perfect yes. that's brain that's exercise my, that's my sort of exercise yep. now stanley stanley tucci stephen king and bono are among the names confirmed to appear at this year's Cheltenham Literary Festival. This is the world's oldest literary festival, first appearing in 1949, and to be held this year across 10 days in October, hosting more than 500 events and close to a 1,000 authors. Um, So apart from the ones I've already mentioned, there's also Ian McEwan, Mallory Blackman and Alexander McCall-Smith. So the festival will take place between October the 7th and the 16th, and tickets are available for the general public from September the 7th. So why don't you have a look on the website, see what you'd like to, uh, to spot, and decide on a, on a day out to Cheltenham, not yes, far away. Uh, a very nice town to, to spend a day, or indeed a weekend. Now, anyone can write about heroes, but what about their less successful brothers and sisters? Now, the publishing company Headline is about to publish, um, um, is set to publish uh, and, and because uh, this is a family show and it's in the morning, I'm going to spell the first bit out for you. A book called S yes. Bleep Bleep T, oh, okay. Literary Siblings. 
which is um, a spin-off from a column that um, appears in the Fence magazine that gives fame to the forgotten and forgettable blood relations. So, for example, to give you a bit of a taste, it, it includes Euston Bear, who was delivered to a less <laughs> a desirable railway station in London and who ended up being adopted by heroin addicts. Then there is Hubert Humbert, um, uh, who's a scout leader whose DBS checks take much longer than they should. And then there is the inept Mr. Ripley who is imprisoned for shoplifting a fridge magnet at an Italian <laughs> resort. And then the other one, which I think is great, uh, is there's Anderson Crusoe who's a cautious traveller fond of caravanning and canal breaks. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> that sounds lovely. <laughs> now, an American university has revealed that one of its greatest treasures, a Galileo manuscript from the early 17th century, is probably the work of an Italian forger. <gasps> oh, for almost a century, this one-page document has been celebrated as being written by Galileo Galilei, the celebrated Italian astronomer, physicist and engineer as it contains the observations of the moons of Jupiter from 1610, together with a draft letter signed by the scientist. Now, considered one of the jewels of the Michigan University Library, it's now being downgraded uh, following an investigation by an expert on forgeries who's previously discovered other imitations of Galileo's work. Suspicions were raised after examining the article online and spotting the link used, sorry, spotting that the ink used for both parts of the document appeared similar, even though they were supposed to have been written months apart. And the giveaway was the watermark on the paper, which hadn't appeared anywhere else before 1770, so unlikely to have been used 150 years earlier. What a oh shame. Dear. The voice. <laughs> Of the Thames Valley. River Radio. I think I like it. I think Beat comes next on the list. Thank you for listening to Turning Pages on River Radio because great books aren't just on the bestseller lists. And now, tra-la-la, it's the main event of the morning. We have a fabulous audio recording for you. It's The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins from our friends at Baker Street Press. Um, as you recall, this is the company that brings the world's greatest classic stories to life in these expert retellings. Uh, Baker Street readers give an enchanting taste of the original tales, quoting best-known lines and most memorable moments, and all supported with wonderful, witty illustrations. So the first, uh, the book, the original book, uh, The Moonstone, was published in 1868 and is often being seen as a precursor of the modern mystery novel. Dorothy L. Sayers praised it as probably the finest detective story ever written. Anyway, I'm not so sure about that, but there you are. It did introduce us to a number of elements that we now expect in an English country house robbery, such as an inside job, a red herring, a celebrated, skilled professional investigator and a bungling local constabulary and sort of final twist in the plot. So let's listen to The Moonstone. The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins, retold by Tony Evans, read by Rob Penman. The last thing that I wanted to do was to worry my aunt, but I was sure that my news would upset her. As I waited in the sitting room of her large country house, 
I could hardly believe that twelve years had gone by since my last visit. My father had sent me abroad to study when I was thirteen years old, and I had only returned to England last month. My aunt, Lady Julia Verinder, had invited me to her daughter's eighteenth birthday party. Rachel had been very young when I last saw her. Would we still recognise each other? Lady Verinder entered the room. She was still the pleasant, kind lady I remembered from my boyhood. After we had exchanged greetings, my aunt sent for tea. I noticed that the maid who brought it to us blushed bright red, and her hand shook as she poured out the milk. When the maid left the room, my aunt said with a smile, You have made a great impression on Rosanna. She is the servant who will be keeping your room tidy while you are staying with us. As you can see, she is not used to a handsome young man in the house. Now, I believe you have something important to say to me. I nodded. It concerns the recent death of your brother, John Herncastle. My aunt's face looked troubled. Her brother had led a very wicked life. My aunt had refused to have anything to do with him, and he, in turn, had hated her. When I returned to England, my father told me that he had agreed to carry out the instructions in John Herncastle's will, I continued. It seems that when your brother knew he was dying, he sent for a clergyman and asked to be forgiven for all his bad deeds. Lady Verinder raised her eyebrows. So I heard. It is hard to believe. He also asked my father to look after a very valuable gift, which he said should be given to your daughter on her eighteenth birthday, as a sign of friendship and forgiveness to you both. It is now in the strong room of Frizinghall Bank. On Rachel's birthday in four weeks' time, I will ride to Frizinghall and collect it. My aunt looked very worried. I could guess what she was thinking. It was well known that many years ago, when John Herncastle was a young army officer in India, he had stolen a valuable diamond, the Moonstone, from a sacred Hindu temple. It was said that he had killed several worshippers to get the jewel, and that ever since he had lived in fear of his life. The Indian priests who guarded the temple had sworn that one day they would get the diamond back, but Herncastle had made sure that it was kept safely in his bank in England. I see you have guessed my news, I said. The gift is indeed the moonstone. Your brother may have meant well. After all, it will make your daughter a very wealthy woman. As I spoke these words to my aunt, I decided that I would not add to her concerns by telling her about the mysterious stranger who had followed me in London after I had been given the diamond. I had twice seen the man, tall and dark-skinned, and each time he had vanished in the crowds when he realised I had observed him. Could one of the temple priests be on my trail? Had they followed me to Yorkshire? It is more likely that my brother left Rachel the jewel because he believed it would bring trouble upon her, Lady Verinder said. But I think we must let Rachel have her inheritance, and then we can decide what to do with it. As I nodded in agreement, the door to Lady Verinder's sitting room opened and Rachel came in. The little cousin I remembered from my boyhood had turned into a beautiful young woman, 
She was small and slim, and her hair was the blackest I ever saw. She carried her head upright in a dashing and confident way, and when she spoke, she had a clear, strong voice. Mr. Franklin Blake, she said, smiling prettily and taking my hand. You will not be stealing my favourite dolls on this visit, I hope. Indeed not, Miss Rachel. When she sat down to join us, I reminded myself that the law of England allowed cousins to marry. I was sure that I would enjoy my stay in Yorkshire, despite my worries about the Moonstone. The weeks between my arrival in Yorkshire and Rachel's birthday passed very quickly. I saw no more of the stranger who had followed me in London, and my only worry was my lack of sleep. My cousin had complained about the unpleasant smell of cigar smoke on my clothes, and I had at once given up the habit for good. Now, after years as a heavy smoker, my old dependence on tobacco kept me awake at night. Rachel and I spent many happy mornings riding round Lady Virenda's estate. I also discovered that my cousin shared my interest in art, and we decided to paint one of the doors in her sitting room. We covered the surface with patterns and pictures copied from a book of Italian designs carefully coloured in with a special oil paint. Rachel was determined that we would finish the door in time for her birthday so that she could show off our work. On my cousin's birthday, Wednesday, June 21st, Rachel and I worked hard to complete our decoration. By three o'clock, we had finished. Take care not to touch the paint, I said to Rachel. It will not be dry for some hours. Soon the birthday guests began to appear. The first to arrive was another of my cousins, Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite, who had come to stay with us until the following week. My aunt's butler, Gabriel Betteridge, had told me about him the day before. A fine young man, Mr. Franklin, I'm sure. He is involved in all sorts of charities and good deeds, and the sweetest-tempered person you ever met with. Of course, some people are jealous and call him a sly fellow, but you must judge for yourself. I was soon introduced to Mr. Abelwhite. He stood over six feet high with a pink round face, shaved as smooth as your hand, and long fair hair. Although he greeted me politely, I could not help observing that he did not seem very cheerful. Did some trouble hang over him? Later that afternoon, I rode to Frizinghall and collected the moonstone from the bank. Two servants rode with me in case of trouble, but we saw no one on our journey. When we returned to Lady Verinder's house, I found Rachel in my aunt's sitting room. I gave her the small wooden box which contained the jewel. Your uncle John Herncastle wished you to receive this legacy on your birthday, I told her. Your mother has agreed that you can accept it for the time being. Rachel opened the box and lifted out the diamond. She held it up in a ray of sunlight that poured through the window and cried out with amazement. It was indeed an impressive sight, as large, or nearly, as a plover's egg. The light that streamed from it was like the light from the harvest moon. 
when you looked down into the stone. You looked into a deep yellow that drew your eyes into it so that they saw nothing else. It seemed mysterious and wonderful, as mysterious and wonderful as the heavens themselves. By six o'clock that evening, the other guests had arrived for Rachel's birthday dinner. When we sat down for the meal, there were twenty-four of us around the table. I sat opposite my cousin. The local medical man, Dr. Candy, sat on Rachel's left. On her right sat Mr. Murthwaite, the famous explorer who had travelled in remote parts of India. He was a lean, silent man with a very steady, attentive look. After the rector of Frizinghall had stood up and said grace, Gabriel Betteridge and the other servants brought in the dishes. Rachel had fixed the moonstone onto her white dress, using a little piece of silver wire. Everyone admired the size and beauty of the precious stone. We had an enjoyable dinner, until my disagreement with Dr. Candy at the end of the meal. Someone had told him about my sleepless nights, and he insisted that I should take the medicine he recommended. Time will cure me, I said to him. I am already getting more used to doing without my cigars. Better to let nature take its course than risk taking one of your dangerous mixtures and end up asleep forever. Dr. Candy was not amused. You're a foolish young man, he said. You risk damaging your health if you do nothing to improve your condition. Why, a few drops of laudanum. I was about to interrupt him when Lady Verinda spoke. Come, gentlemen, let's not quarrel on dear Rachel's birthday. After that, we changed the subject and talked cheerfully of other things. Just as we were finishing our meal, Gabriel Betteridge hurried into the dining room. As he rushed up to Lady Verinda, we could all hear the sound of drumming from the terrace at the front of the house. My lady, there are three Indian jugglers at the door, Betteridge gasped. The leader has asked if they can perform for your guests. I told him I would need to seek your permission, but before Betteridge could say any more, our guests ran out of the room towards the front door. I took Miss Verinder's arm. Stay close to my side, I warned her. By the time we reached the terrace, the Indians' performance had already begun. Two of the Indians were juggling brass balls, while the third was beating a small round drum. Had they seen the diamond pinned to my cousin's dress? When they had finished their performance, the leader of the Indians passed round a copper bowl to collect money from the audience. After all three had left the garden, I caught up with Mr. Murthwaite before he went indoors. Mr. Blake, he said to me, I have seen real Indian jugglers on my travels, and those three are no more jugglers than you and I are. If I am not mistaken, they are Indian priests in disguise. Do you know what may have brought them here, such a distance from their home and their religious duties? I decided to tell Mr. Murthwaite the whole story of the Moonstone how it had been stolen years ago by my uncle, how I had been given it to take to Miss Verinder, and how I had been followed by a mysterious stranger in London. When I had finished my story, I asked Mr. Murthwaite for his advice. 
I am certain that those Indians are determined to get back the moonstone and return it to its proper place in their temple, he said. Those men will wait for an opportunity as patiently as cats and will act with the fierceness of tigers. I suggest you make sure all your doors and windows are bolted tonight and let the dogs roam free outside. That night, I asked Betteridge to bring a glass of brandy and water up to my bedroom. I slept better than I had done for many weeks. In fact, I had slept so soundly that I felt dull and drowsy when I woke up. There was a knock at my door, and a servant entered with my usual cup of coffee. As soon as I had drunk it, my head cleared. Suddenly, I heard a loud cry from outside my room. It was Rachel's voice, but raised in fear and dismay. Mother, she screamed, come upstairs, for heaven's sake, the moonstone is gone. I dressed as quickly as I could, then ran down the corridor to my cousin's bedroom. Rachel stood looking at an empty drawer in her bedside table, her face deathly pale. When she saw me, she stepped back in shock and surprise. Had my sudden appearance frightened her? Lady Verinder grasped my arm. I should never have let Rachel keep the diamond in her bedroom, she cried. Please stay calm, Lady Verinder, I said. I will ask Betteridge to check all the doors and windows to see if any have been forced, and we must send one of the servants to Frizinghall to ask Sergeant Cuff to come here as soon as he can. He is one of the finest detectives in the country, and if anyone can help us, the sergeant can. Make sure that Sergeant Cuff is told about the Indian jugglers. He may be able to stop them before they escape. While we were waiting downstairs for Sergeant Cuff to arrive, Betteridge told us that there were no signs of a break-in. All the doors and windows were securely fastened, and the dogs had made no sound. When Sergeant Cuff arrived, we soon told him all we knew about the Moonstone. The Indian jugglers or temple priests or whoever they are could not have stolen the diamond, he told us. The Frizinghall police thought they were acting suspiciously and locked them in the station cells. They were released this morning without charge, but it would have been impossible for them to break into your house overnight. Sergeant Cuff told us that he wished to examine every room in the house. If Mr Blake could come with me, that would be a great help, he said. Lady Verinder persuaded Rachel to leave her bedroom to let us look through it, but we could find no clues. Next, we looked in the small sitting room that led to my cousin's bedroom. Sergeant Cuff looked at the brightly painted door which Rachel and I had decorated in the weeks before her birthday. This paint looks new, the sergeant said. When was it finished? I can tell you exactly, I replied. I remember that Rachel and I finished painting it by three o'clock yesterday afternoon, on her birthday. Rachel was proud of our design and wanted to show it to her birthday guests. She had to warn them not to touch it, that oil paint takes twelve hours to dry. Then I could see what Sergeant Cuff was looking at. The pattern on the outer edge of the door was smeared as if someone had brushed their clothes against it before it had dried. 
Half an hour later, Sergeant Cuff asked if he could speak to Lady Verinder and her daughter, Godfrey Abelwhite, Betteridge and me. We all agreed, except Rachel, who absolutely refused to be present when she heard I would be at the meeting. She had even told her mother that I should not be allowed to help Sergeant Cuff in his investigation. What could I possibly have done to offend her? I have spoken to Miss Verinder's maid, the sergeant told us. She tidied up her mistress's sitting room just before midnight yesterday. She tells me she checked the door before she left and is certain the paint was not smeared at that time. Do you all understand what this means? The only way into Miss Verinder's bedroom is through her sitting room, which leads onto it. As the painting was finished at three o'clock yesterday and takes twelve hours to dry, the door must have been smeared between midnight and three o'clock this morning. Whoever stole the moonstone will almost certainly have oil paint on their clothes, clothes which they have probably hidden somewhere in this house, along with the diamond. Sergeant Cuff soon sent a message to everyone in the house, including all the servants, asking them to allow him to look through all their clothes and search their rooms. Lady Verinder, Godfrey Abel, White, Betteridge and I agreed straight away. My aunt left us to speak to her daughter. When Lady Verinder joined us in the sitting room, she looked pale and upset. I cannot understand it, she said. Rachel refuses to have her clothes examined or her room searched. Sergeant Cuff looked stern. If that is the case, Lady Verinder, then I can be of no more help to you. There is little point in looking at anyone's belongings if we cannot look at everyone's. If you do need to contact me, feel free to do so. You have my address. After Sergeant Cuff gave up the case, the investigation came to an end. Sadly, I decided that there was no longer any point in my remaining in Yorkshire, or even in England. I decided that I would return to London, tell my father what had taken place at Lady Verinder's house, and then leave again to travel abroad. I hoped that whatever had happened, the Moonstone would no longer be a threat to Rachel's happiness. I had been travelling in the East for ten months when two letters reached me from England. The first had an envelope with a black border, so when I opened it I expected to hear bad news. It was as I had feared. My father had died. He had left me a large estate, and I was now a very rich man. The second letter was from Mr. Bruff, Lady Verinder's lawyer. The postmark showed that it had been sent to me two days before my father's death. Dear Mr. Blake, I am sorry to tell you that your aunt, Lady Verinder, died suddenly from a heart attack two weeks ago. You will know that I am her family solicitor, and that I am aware of all the strange events which took place at Lady Verinder's Yorkshire home when the Moonstone mysteriously disappeared. Now that she is no longer alive, I believe it is my duty to let you know what has happened since you left England. Four weeks ago, the newspapers reported that Godfrey Abelwhite and a money lender, Samuel Luca, 
were kidnapped in London by three dark-skinned men. They were taken to an empty house and searched. They were not harmed and have said that nothing was taken from them. However, there is now a rumour that Mr. Abelwhite somehow managed to get hold of the Moonstone and used it as security to borrow money from Mr. Luca. If that is true, I am sure that the diamond was safe in Mr. Luca's bank when they were kidnapped and searched. Last month, Lady Verinder sent for me and told me that her daughter wished to sign a statement and give it to me for safekeeping. I was surprised to find that Miss Rachel's statement said that she knew for certain that Godfrey Abelwhite had not stolen the Moonstone and that she was prepared to swear to this in a court of law, if necessary. Although Miss Rachel would not explain her reasons, I know her well enough to believe she is telling the truth and has some information which she wishes to keep secret. She is now living in her late mother's London house. I am not sure when you plan to return to England. However, when you do, please get in touch with me if you need my help. Yours very sincerely, Matthew Bruff, Solicitor. I decided that it was my duty to return to England immediately. When I arrived in London, I found a letter and small parcel waiting for me at my father's house. These had been delivered just after I had left England with instructions that they should be given to me when I got back from my travels. The letter was from Rosanna Spearman. The name seemed familiar to me, and then I remembered. Rosanna was the servant girl who had cleaned my room when I stayed at Lady Verinder's Yorkshire house, and who had blushed and trembled so violently when she had served me tea on the first morning of my visit. I tore open the letter and read the few lines it contained. I have fallen in love with you. I know your secret, but I will never give you away. We will never meet again. I opened the small parcel that Rosanna had left for me. It looked like one of my nightshirts. I had taken several on my visit and Rosanna had washed them for me along with my other clothes. There was one way I could be sure. Yes, there was my name sewn into the collar. Then, when I unrolled the material and held it up, I could see what Rosanna had discovered. Along the bottom of the nightshirt, there was a coloured streak of oil paint, exactly the colour of the smear on Rachel's bedroom door. But how could I be the thief when I knew that I had not stolen the moonstone? Somehow I was sure that Rachel had the clue to this mystery. I decided to visit her. This time I would insist on speaking to my cousin. The next day I called at Rachel's London house. When the butler answered the door, I first got him to admit that my cousin was at home, then pushed past him. At the moment when I showed myself in her room, she rose from the piano. As she looked at me, I could see anger and distrust in her eyes. Rachel, what have I done? I asked. What have you done? You ask that question of me? I ask it. I have kept your wickedness a secret, she answered. How can you now insult me by asking what you have done? 
They say your father's death has made you a rich man. Have you come to pay me for the loss of my diamond? You do me wrong, I broke out hotly. You suspect me of stealing the moonstone? I have a right to know, and I will know the reason why. Suspect you, she exclaimed, her anger growing. You villain! I saw you take the diamond with my own eyes. I sat down, stunned. No wonder that my cousin was willing to swear that Godfrey Ablewhite was innocent. The Indian priests must have been mistaken when they suspected him. Rachel, I said, I swear to you that I have no memory of stealing the moonstone. But I am sure you would not lie to me. I beg you, if you ever cared for me at all, tell me exactly what you saw that night. Rachel sat opposite me, calmer now, her eyes wet with tears. It did not take long for her to explain what she had seen. She had been woken up by the sound of her bedroom door opening. She had seen me come in, dressed in my nightshirt, with a candle in my hand. I had walked straight to her bedside cabinet and opened each of the drawers in turn, closing them afterwards, until I got to the top drawer. I had taken out the small box which contained the moonstone, then left the room. Why did you not give me away? I asked. I thought that perhaps there was some reason for your behaviour, that you would come to me and explain, Rachel replied. Then, as the days passed, I realised that you were a common thief. Even so, I could not bring myself to be the cause of your disgrace and imprisonment. I turned to my cousin and held her hands in mine. Rachel, you must know that I love you. I swear to you that I did not steal the moonstone. I will not rest until I have solved this mystery. I will speak to Mr. Bruff, your family solicitor, and tell him everything that has happened. Perhaps he will be able to help me. On the following day, when I arrived at Mr. Bruff's London office, he was surprised and delighted to see me. I told him about the parcel that Rosanna had sent me, and everything that Rachel had said. I have some important news for you, Mr. Blake, he said. It may help to explain this mystery. Dr. Candy has written to me from Yorkshire. He has now realised that the joke he played on you, on the night of Rachel's birthday, may have had some very serious consequences. What joke? I asked. I had not seen Dr. Candy that night once the birthday dinner was over. Mr. Bruff smiled. You remember that the doctor offered you some medicine to make you sleep, and you made fun of his dangerous mixtures. Well, your remarks must have upset the doctor. He managed to put several drops of laudanum in your brandy and water when Betteridge was not looking, hoping you would have a good night's rest and prove him right. Dr. Candy now believes that a strong dose of laudanum could have made you walk in your sleep. It is very possible that you were worried about the moonstone and Miss Verinder's safety. You could have taken the diamond without ever waking up. That is true, Mr. Bruff. But if so, it still leaves us with a mystery. If I took the moonstone when I was sleepwalking, why did I not find it the next morning? I searched my room very carefully, and I can assure you the diamond was not there. 
at any rate, there can now be no suspicion of Godfrey Ablewhite. Mr. Bruff frowned. I am not so sure. I have discovered that Mr. Ablewhite has recently inherited several thousand pounds. The money will be paid to him in one week's time, on Friday. If he has borrowed money from Mr. Luca in return for the diamond, it is certain that he will want to use his legacy to repay his loan and reclaim the boonstone, which is worth far more than he borrowed. I have arranged for Mr. Ablewhite and Mr. Luca to be watched. If you are able to call into my office early on Friday morning, you will find out if Mr. Ablewhite is indeed as innocent as you suppose. You will be pleased to know that Sergeant Cuff is now in London. I will ask him to join us. That Friday I called on Mr. Bruff in his office. Sergeant Cuff had already arrived, and Mr. Bruff had told him everything that had happened since he had left Lady Verinder's house in Yorkshire. Just after ten o'clock a messenger boy came to the door. Mr. Luca was on his way to his bank. There was not a moment to lose. Mr. Bruff, Sergeant Cuff and I took a cab to the bank. As we pushed inside the crowded office, Mr. Bruff recognised Mr. Luca. That's him, Bruff said to us. That short, elderly man with the black coat. He is walking away from the counter. He may have the moonstone, so look out for Mr. Ablewhite. As he spoke, Mr. Luca crossed the banking hall towards the outside doorway. There was no sign of Godfrey Ablewhite. Mr. Luca bumped into a brown-faced man with a thick black beard, who looked like a sailor. He seemed to say something, and then they both left the bank. Quick, said Sergeant Cuff, follow Mr. Luca home, there is still a chance that he may meet Ablewhite. Meanwhile, I will follow the sailor. I am sure that Luca spoke to him a moment ago. He may know something of this matter. I will meet you both at Mr. Bruff's office at seven o'clock tomorrow morning. Early the next morning, Sergeant Cuff told us his news. He had followed the sailor to a public house, the Wheel of Fortune, and had heard him pay the landlord for a room for the night. We decided to go to the inn straight away to speak to the sailor and find out what he knew. The moment we entered the Wheel of Fortune, just after eight o'clock, the landlord rushed up to us. You must forgive me, gentlemen, he said. I am annoyed and upset, that's the truth. Something unpleasant has happened this morning. Now what can I do to help you? Sergeant Cuff explained that we were looking for a tall, bearded sailor with a brown, weather-beaten face. But that's just it, sir, the landlord said. That is the man who has been causing us all the trouble. When he went to his room last night, he told us to be sure to call him at six o'clock this morning. We did call him, but got no reply. We tried again at seven, and again just before you arrived. No use. His door is locked with the key inside. Well, I mean to get into that room. We all went upstairs at once to the top story. I noticed that the sergeant was looking very serious. What did he expect to find? We soon broke open the door. A chilling sight met our eyes. A trap-door hung open from the ceiling. The sailor had not left the room. He lay, fully dressed, on the bed, with a white pillow completely covering his face. 
Mr. Bruff picked up a small empty box from the bedroom floor, the box that had contained the moonstone. Without speaking, Sergeant Cuff led the way to the bed and removed the pillow. The man's tanned face was still, and his eyes stared wide open, glassy and vacant at the ceiling. His expression horrified me, and I turned away and went to the window. He is dead, the sergeant said. It is clear to me what must have happened. The murderer entered a house nearby, got on the roof, and entered this room through the trapdoor in the ceiling. Landlord, you must send for the nearest doctor and inform the local police. As the landlord left the room, Sergeant Cuff took me by the arm and led me back to the body. Mr Blake, he said, look at the man's face. He is disguised, see? He pointed to a thin line of white skin between the dead man's forehead and his dark curly hair. The sergeant seized the hair and pulled it off. It was a wig. Next he tore away the false beard. The sergeant took a flannel and bowl of water from the nearby washstand and rubbed hard at the sailor's brown skin. The colour came off easily. I stood back and looked down at the man's pale face and straight blonde hair. It was a face that I knew well. It was Godfrey Abelwhite. After our shocking discovery, the three of us decided to call on Mr. Luca. We were sure that the money lender would be able to explain the rest of the mystery, and we were not disappointed. Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite was badly in debt and desperate for money, Mr. Luca explained. He borrowed £5,000 from me and left me the diamond as security. When he claimed his inheritance, he arranged to meet me at the bank in disguise in case he was followed by the Indian priests. He repaid the loan. I, in turn, took the moonstone from my bank, pretended to bump into him, and slipped the diamond into his hand as we passed each other. There is still part of the mystery to explain, said Sergeant Cuff. We now know that Mr. Blake here, he pointed to me, took the diamond from Miss Verinda's bedroom in his sleep. But how did Godfrey Abelwhite get hold of it? I insisted that he explained that to me, Mr. Luca replied. I refused to lend him the money otherwise. Eventually he admitted that on the night of Miss Verinda's birthday he had heard a noise, woken up and seen Mr. Blake outside his bedroom. He was holding the moonstone in his hand and staring blankly in front of him, as if in a trance. Godfrey Abelwhite took the diamond from him and led him back to his own room. The next morning, when Mr. Blake remembered nothing, Abelwhite decided to keep the diamond and use it to raise money to pay his debts. Mr. Bruff stood up. Well, we can be sure of one thing, he said. The Indian priests must have suspected Godfrey Abelwhite, traced him to the inn, killed him, and reclaimed the moonstone. They are probably on their way back to India already. I doubt that we shall hear anything of that cursed diamond again. As it turned out, Mr. Bruff's prediction was wrong. 
It was a year later, and just eight months since my marriage to Rachel Verinder, now Mrs. Blake, that I was visited by Mr. Murthwaite, the explorer who had identified the Indian priests on the night of my cousin's birthday. He informed my wife and me that he had recently returned from a remote part of western India. One night I visited a Hindu temple in the wild region of Kathiawar, he told us. On one of the holy statues there shone a huge, glorious yellow diamond. Anyone who had seen the moonstone could not doubt that this was the same gem. I left the place quietly, not wishing to disturb the three silent priests who stood guard over it. The moonstone has been returned to its rightful place, and I hope that it will remain there always. Quite right too, I don't know. So that was the Moonstone by Wilkie Collins, retold for the Real Reads team. So thank you very much indeed to Real Reads and Baker Street Press for letting us use this recording. And I really hope you've enjoyed it. If you're interested in any of their retold classics, who are described as miniature masterpieces by the Radio 4 Open Book Programme, they've got 100 titles to choose from, and they're each just 54 pages long. So ideal for sort of like a a 30-minute read or over a cup of tea. Perfect for children and adults. Indeed, indeed. Now, um, after our programme last week on weather, uh, we've had a request from Mrs Joy Pennells in Sevenoaks to read um, uh, a summer-related poem. And so uh, we have A Summer Shower by Emily Dixonson. Now, to our listeners, um, including Joy, this is going to be a live reading um, rather than recording. So here we go. A drop fell on the apple tree, another on the roof. A half a dozen kissed the eaves and made the gables laugh. A few went out to help the brook that went to help the sea. Myself conjectured, were they pearls, what necklaces could be? The dust replaced in hoisted roads, the birds jocosa sung. The sunshine threw his hat away, the orchard spangles hung. The breezes brought dejected lutes and bathed them in the glee. The east put out a single flag and signed the fate away. That was lovely. Yes, yeah, it was, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. a little a little poem to, to a spring trap. And Emily Dickinson, <laughs> of course, is seen as a just a huge poem over in the States. But she was sort of unknown when she was alive, mm. which is sad. Well, yeah, I know it. It is. It's. It's. But uh, isn't that the way of a lot of um, um, of uh, geniuses uh, in in um, like, like in ourselves books and in art? You know, like like ourselves, Julian. Exactly. Exactly. You know, the, the footage of these programs when we're long turned to dust. I say, <laughs> my gosh, what a fantastic duo they were! How the nation must have been gripped oh, every Wednesday between eleven and twelve, and and on Saturdays between two and three. <laughs> Gripped with excitement, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, and a frenzy of delight as they were tuning in to their DAB radio stations or online. Anyway, <laughs> since your request at the beginning of the programme about um, getting our listeners to um, to contact us with information, have we had a contact? We, <laughs> we've had a contact. Is anybody there? <laughs> 
we have had a contact. So I'd like to say a huge thank you to Jan for sending this information through because she uh, sent me a link because it's National Read a Book Day next uh, next Tuesday, September the ah. 6th. Wow, so, right. So, yeah. Good. So the Very whole important. idea is that you grab a book, grab a cup of tea or coffee, sit down and just have a jolly good read. And mm. I think we ought to be celebrating that. I think that's yes, a really good thing so. to do. I think, and I, I noticed that there, there are various um, charities that I think link in. I, mean, I think there's the dementia charity as well, which is linking to what we were saying about reading and exercising ah, your mind. Yeah. So it's really important. So yes, I mean, grab a book, anything. I mean, I think, I, I think m- mostly they talk about um, fiction, but uh, I think anything you know can can be read. Um, just just read. That's the important thing. Um, you know. That's, yeah. uh, that's really now though i did actually find i'm going to find something here there oh, were some okay. statistics i found okay. which are really interesting yeah. and probably could you just hum a little while oh, ahead I can, yes well, I'm find like, these statistics. I, I will <laughs> just i'll just give you an idea of what you could read because yeah. the top of the bestseller list straight in as soon as it is published mm-hmm. is how to live when you could be dead by deborah james Ooh, which right. is that uh amazing um lady that has sadly just died after being diagnosed five years oh, ago yes. with incurable bowel ba- yes. cancer. Um, and I'd like to say that for every book sold, three pounds of the sale money goes to the Bowel Babe Fund for Cancer Research UK, which is a really good thing. So Penguin yes. Books are financing that. Yeah. And uh, and it's a great book as well. It was serialised in the time. So I've read a few of the excerpts. And it's a lovely story about how she got the information, how she knew that she had to make the time that she had left as special as she could. And I think that's a message for all of us, isn't it? We need it is, to appreciate the importance of every day that we have. Yeah, on exactly, this exactly. Well, I found I found a little um, little little a book fact, um, oh, which yes. is one was, um, who is the fastest reader in the world? Apparently, it's Howard Berg, who was recognised in 1990 by the Guinness Book of Records as the world's fastest reader because he read over 20 25,000 words in a minute. Wow, that's yes. amazing. And to top that, to give, that, give some context, how quickly does the average person read? Well, the average person, which is which is a non-speed reader, yeah. reads between 200 and 300 words per minute. And he did 25,000. in a minute, yes. Well, yes. I've got to say, I went onto the website and looked at speed reading. And I, I listened to a few sort of video clips, watched some video clips on how to speed read. Because I'm doing this course and I thought, well, it would be a really good oh, idea yes. to try and, you know, read books quickly. Hmm. And I've got to say, you can do it. You sort of have, you need a ruler and you need to sort of pull the ruler oh. down. Uh, quite quickly and you don't sort of look at the words on either side on either do, red you do the center bit yes is it, is you're reading you're the center bit that's right Gosh. and you can do it but i've got to say you don't enjoy the book no so you, you sort of you read it and you do understand what it's saying and obviously if you see something very good you can mm. go back and <clears> double check it but i don't think you really get the the enjoyment out mm. of reading i remember when i when i was my boy my father had got a a, a machine i can't remember Bought, bought it from but it was actually to help to, to teach you to speed read and it was it was a it was a bit like the size of a kindle and um you you, you could set it it had it had um script 
sheets inside yeah. and it had a, a shutter window on it right. and, and you could set it by whatever and you flicked it and, 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 and it would reveal it would reveal the sentence oh, and then wow. it snapped shut so you had to you know to see how fast you could read it it was really extraordinary I presume I, I probably got thrown out over the years but it would be fascinating I mean my, my, my parents died over 20 odd years ago so I think probably it was thrown out but it was a fascinating machine it wasn't it was it was a plastic machine and that was and that's how it did and you wow, you, you could teach your Yourself to, to speed, speed read. read, but it would be a whole sentence, yeah. and then the, so you'd set it whatever it was. I think it was by seconds, and then press the button, and then you, and then this shut up a shutdown. So oh. you had to read it before that came down. Gosh, gosh, that is that is incredible. Well, I'm afraid the shutter has now come down. She said, "Did you see the way I segwayed oh, into?" Perfect. Yes, so we, <laughs> this is it. Yeah. So the, the, shutter, the shutter has now come down on turning pages for this week. So many thanks to everyone for joining us today. We do hope you've enjoyed the programme and we really appreciate your company. We look forward to you joining us next Wednesday.